Damon Galgut, congratulations. Thank you. Let's talk first about what The Promise is about. It begins in 1986 and it really unfolds through shifting points of view, ghosts and dreams, but at the centre is a promise. Can you tell us what that promise is? The promise is one that was extracted from a husband um, by his wife on her deathbed. And it relates to a small broken down house on a not very good piece of land just outside Pretoria, um, up north in South Africa. Um, The woman who's been looked after through her final illness asks her husband to give that piece of land with a broken down house to the black lady who works for their family and has looked after her through her last illness. And the husband agrees, or perhaps doesn't, the book doesn't make it entirely clear, but um, that promise and its lack of fulfillment haunts the family for the next 40 years. And essentially it's that trajectory that the book is covering, those 40 years of South African history. And haunts is a really great word, actually, because we have quite a few ghosts in this. Uh, And so this family is the Swartz. They live in a house with 24 outside doors, and I really love this detail. It just keeps coming back into my mind. Who is this family? Well, they're a dysfunctional white family, um, not unlike a great many families that I know, and in some respects not that different to my own, although no characters in the book are based on anybody specific. But the family is uh, made up of three children and the two parents. Um, The children are an elder son called Anton, a little daughter called Astrid, and a younger daughter called Amor. And we follow what happens to them, although only in very, very specific snapshots through the time period that I've described. Mm. And the story, as you say, covers four generations of this one family. So, and it's about this promise that isn't kept. But so what was the biggest story you wanted to tell with this family saga? Well, what drew me to the idea actually um, wasn't the politics of the promise so much. I mean, obviously that's very central to the book and very important. But what drew me to it was the pleasure of playing with the passage of time. Um, I got the initial idea from speaking to a friend who happens to be the last surviving member of his family. He's a very funny raconteur, and on a sort of semi-drunken afternoon, he told me some of the stories of what had happened at the four family funerals that he'd attended of his parents and his brother and his sister. Um, Now, that sounds like pretty dark material, and in some respects it is, but uh, in fact, he made a lot of those stories very funny because, of course, funerals are occasions where families come together to honor a somebody who's died, but what you're seeing and what you're encountering are the living. And, you know, living people, especially families who want things but can't say that, uh, are often very amusing. So um, as a writer, I was, I was most intrigued by the idea of telling the story of this family through the device of just focusing on the funeral of a family member. So there are four funerals. Each one happens in a different decade of South African history. And all you're getting are the couple of days, a small period of time around each funeral. And you're seeing what's happened to each individual character through that window. 
but you're not really being filled in on the intervening time. So you're seeing things change without necessarily um, being told how those changes happen. And that kind of intrigues me, you know, because every story's got an edge. It's like the edge of a map. Um, and what's not said, what's not revealed can be even more compelling than what is. Um, and as a writer, that's that's a kind of challenge that intrigues and appeals to me. Mm. Now, Damon, at first when I was reading The Promise, I thought the book was about 13-year-old Amor. Then I thought it was about Astrid uh, and Anton. But really, there's this all-seeing presence. Um, the style has been compared to like a Greek drama what, why did you write it like this way? It's almost cinematic and it was, it's really compelling. Thank you. Yeah, uh, the cinematic uh, term actually is relevant because I did start the book in a, in a far more conventional way, um, which is to say using a, an omniscient third-person narrator uh, that occupies a kind of steady position. You know, the, the way you're supposed to use... Um, third-person narration is you're, you're not really supposed to no, notice the narrator. It's, it's part of the sleight of hand telling the story that, you know, you, you don't really wonder who, who, who's telling you this. Um, but that's sort of frustrating to me because, um, you know, every story is narrated by somebody. So at a certain point, I broke away from the writing of the book to do a couple of drafts of a film script. Um, although that wasn't an especially lovely way to spend my time. It, it was a great gift in a certain sense, because when I returned to the book, I suddenly saw that you could do this narration differently. You could actually do it cinematically, to use the word. So I started to use the narrator almost in the way that a camera is the storyteller in a film, um, which is to say, although you're watching a story, continuously kind of unfold in front of you. It is being told through jumps and flashes, sometimes pulling right back, sometimes zooming in really close. And even in one scene, you might get multiple points of view. So that was quite exciting for me because, um, you know, this is a very fragmented and divided country that I live in. And um, there's, no, there's no one voice that can speak for South Africa. So uh, it was satisfying in a certain way to be able to pull up a chorus of voices. Um, each one putting its point of view, sometimes overlapping each other, contradicting each other, even in the course of a single sentence, to you know, to conjure up some of the, you know, the, dis the, the discord and dissonance of the multiple voices of the country. I mean, there is a potential problem with that because I didn't know right through the writing whether this would actually work. I mean, I, I do some creative writing teaching um, at Cape Town University occasionally. And if a student wanted to do this, I would absolutely tell them not to. <laughs> so it did make me very insecure. Um, and it was really only when I was done and uh, people could read it from start to finish that I felt reassured um, and more sure that it, it worked. Uh, and Damon, this isn't your, your first time to, I guess, wade into the story of apartheid and its legacy in South Africa. Um, and so I guess I just want to know, what does it take for you to, to wade into that realm in fiction? Well, you know, it's not a, it's not a foreign topic, unfortunately. I mean, it's, it's part of my upbringing. I grew up in Pretoria. So, you know, writing this book was a way of kind of exorcising it, I guess. But um, my very early books 
weren't concerned with politics at all. And I think by temperament, I'm not that you know, politically aware a person. So it came as a little bit of a rude shock in my early years when some reviewers um, responded to my books as the work of um, you know, a privileged white kid who didn't have to bother with history. Um, and I guess that was bothersome because it was true. So I began more consciously to engage with what was going on in the country. And of course, you know, most modern South African literature does that too. So through reading and just through living, uh, I did become more engaged. You know, I'm not interested in writing political novels per se. They're, they're eternal, the very idea is eternal. But I am interested in illuminating how it feels to be alive, to be a human being at, at a, you know, a certain point in history, because that's true for all of us. So with this book, um, although some people have responded to it as a, as a political work, there are no mentions of political parties at all. The, the closest you get is um, a different president in power in each um, section of the book, each of the four sections. But um, what I was trying to conjure was the spirit of living at that particular time, because you know, it's, it's been different in different decades. History is still quite a tumultuous affair here. Mm. And this is your third time shortlisted for the Booker. What does that even mean to you now, being the third time? <laughs> well, I mean, um, it was a raw sort of shock first time around. I've got more used to the idea, I guess. But um, however problematic prize lists may be, and I, I do think they're problematic in lots of ways, um, it's been nothing but a privilege and a pleasure to land up on the list. It makes a huge difference to your fortunes, by which I mean, you know, your, your luck rather than your money, although it does good things for that too. Now, I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be on the shortlist. I, um, I'm not going to question it further than that. It's a good place to be. Absolutely, and well-deserved. And will you be able to travel to the award ceremony? Well, at this point, it's unclear because we are, for reasons that nobody quite understands, on the UK's red list at the moment, which means South Africans are not being given entry to the UK. So mm. unless there's a way around that, which I think is being investigated at the moment, or unless they drop us from the red list, which is possible, uh, I may have to do this remotely. But, you know, we've all had a bit of practice at that over the last year or so. Haven't we just? Well, Damon Galgut, um, all the best and um, I hope you make it to the awards ceremony. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Sarah.